Hello, Mixed Net Cases. This is Nuke Chess, and this is an episode of Intro to Ghibli. We got together and we watched The Wind Rises. With me, as always... Hold on, I'm landing my plane. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tech. Can you not see my beautiful airplane? And uh, our guides to everything Ghibli. Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jen. And that over in the corner is Tech's Italian aeronautical engineering boyfriend. <laughs> Look, does nobody else see Count Caproni just hanging out? No, he's my imaginary Italian aeronautical engineer. Look, you you guys have fun with your flying houseboat. It, doesn't act- <laughs> um, it flew once and a half. Once and a half. The Caproni CA sixty, for the record, flew once and a half. It did a little, a little hop down the lake, and when they went to take it for its true test flight, it collapsed. So, um, <laughs> Tech, do you want to give the listeners um, a? patented tech 60 second summary what you know a quick summary of what this is just in case they didn't watch the movie and they're just listening to it beat for funsies i have two mm-hmm. one what if hayo hayo mizaki somehow got a hold of a brain scan machine and scanned my brain to write the perfect love story <laughs> or two and this still boggles my mind how do you write an interwar story about World War II in Japan without mentioning World War II at all. And everything that Japan did and everything that happened in Japan throughout all of the 30s and 40s, you put your fingers in your ears and just, yeah, la, 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 love story, la, 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 love story, planes, la, 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 and you have the wind rises. I mean, that's, that, that is, that is fair. That is fair. Uh, so one of the big things that I think is interesting is I always, heard that this is the story of the guy that invented the zero. Um, but what I didn't realize till we started watching it is, yeah, half of this is about the guy developing the zero. The other half comes from a novel, The Wind Has Risen, and the all of the love story and personal parts are from the character from there. I see, but not from the real guy. Not from the real guy. Right. So it's, okay. it's, this is a fictional Euro, um, not not the realistic authentic tale the designing side according to uh my quick little research in between watching and now is that 80 percent of all the technical stuff is 100 percent accurate 80 percent of the time it's It's right 100 percent of the time they kind of fudged a certain few things just to make it go on track so that we didn't see him oh i don't want to design planes anymore i or all the times that he got sick and all the times he had to go t- and and take a break because he worked himself to being sick. Um, yes, they didn't want to show you what happens to real life Japanese businessmen. No, no. Right. And, Which- th- and then he got pleurisy. La, 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 la. <laughs> like, <laughs> fine, he was on vacation. No, I just love the fact that, like, they're like, yeah, the 80% of all the aeronautical stuff is correct, but that 20% would have been really boring, lots of math, or him sick and almost dying because he worked himself to death. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, honestly, plot summary, this is the story of a young man named Jiro growing up in Japan who wants to be a pilot and has dreams of flying, but can't because of his crummy eyesight. And he lives in this fantasy dream world where he finds himself talking to other famous aeronautical engineers, including Count Caproni, the brilliant 
if not slightly flawed Italian houseboat designer, <laughs> or flying boat designer, excuse me, who um, tells him to pursue his dream anyway and become an engineer. So he does, and he ends up working for a little company you may have heard of called Mitsubishi. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, starts uh, working on developing airplanes. And it's a... Uh, it is a touching, beautiful story of uh, following your passions. Yeah. And in true Miyazaki fashion, we have very competent, strong female characters in this. Although I think this is probably his most male focused story. Yeah. Right. Like of the stories, how many of them is the the male, the main character? Honestly, it's just this one. Porco. True. But Porco's not saved by his own volition. Porco yeah. is saved in that movie no. by a just so happened to be young aeronautical engineer and plane mechanic. Yeah, just, right. just so happened to be. Exactly. <laughs> I think so far that's the only one I can think of. Is, and, is... Yeah. And Porco is Italian. Yes. And a pig. We haven't quite forgotten that. <laughs> yes. That Italian pork, that prosciutto is very nice. Uh-huh. Very nice. Oh, okay. I'm not going there. Um, so, <laughs> uh-huh. ADHD brain is hard. Uh, so this was a really nice, it was very sweet. It was a very sweet love story with a tragic end that they did not show. They're just implied. Um, very beautiful. The whole thing was beautiful from the animation to the landscapes to, um, the music to the way the story flows. It was just every, it was, it was all like just gliding on a gust of this, wind, the whole movie. This has the highest count of dead animators, correct? Like, oh my God. So, this is Mononoke? Yeah, I think so. Just because Princess Mononoke didn't have a lot of those small, finite details, like with the, the underside of the train, the the blueprints for the aircraft, the different moving parts for engines and, and propellers and the wood grain and the wooden propellers. Like, I think I think he. Yeah, the parallax as as he turns his head and the 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 way his eyes look behind glasses. Yeah, they draw the refraction of images through not a single eyeglass lens, but a double eyeglass lens in this dude's coke bottle frame. So, like, what I liked a lot of the scenes were of uh, Jiro dreaming, hmm. and a lot of the anime itself was very dreamlike. The music was very calming. The drawings themselves were pastel and flowy. So I like that a lot. Another, they they play a lot with, um, more so than in any of the others, they play a lot with sound in this. And there's a thing that in the dream sequences, all of the foley for the airplanes is done by human voices. So that was the joke I started the episode with. But like the engine of his airplane in his dream is literally just a dude in a microphone going... So, so, but it's we kept mentioning that, and then when I went to the IMDb trivia, mm-hmm. that's the first thing. Human <laughs> voices are largely used as sound effects, but, such as engine roars and earthquake sound. But the thing that's interesting about that, though, is I don't know about you guys, but in my dreams, sound is always messed up. Nothing ever sounds right, and there's always like a mm. pressure in my ears, and sound is always sort of borked. And you know, throwing that into this with the the the, the weird. When he's watching the airplanes, he's watching his dreams crash and he's watching airplane wings fall and he's watching the parts thud into the ground. And it's just these weird muted 
thuds of the yeah, people. and it's people basically saying thud. <laughs> yeah, and it it gives if you look at it on its surface, it's cartoonish, but that's the point, right? Like right. because this starts with a child's dream, a young man, a kid who's probably only what maybe thirteen years old, dreaming about being an aeronautical engineer and following in the footsteps of his hero. So of course there's going to be like the the sounds of him making the propeller noises or the fact that his plane doesn't have wings like a plane but has wings like a bird. You know like it's cartoonish in those aspects but that's what gives it that quality of a dream. And it's also referential. Like his Italian boyfriend says this is a dream. We're sharing this dream. Yeah. And he will also forever be referred to in this episode as his Italian boyfriend. Yes. I mean, clearly. <laughs> clearly. It dream daddy. <laughs> so, but the the level of, man, I hate Miyazaki so much, man. The level of detail he goes into. <sighs> like, the, the framing device is that this is an engineer that's designing an airplane. But that's not the point to the story. The point to the story is it's about following your dreams, whether it's a person or your job or what happens when the dream of your job and the dream of the person you love conflict. How does one rectify that? And, you know, that's the, that's the real, to me, that's the real crux of the movie. But that didn't stop him from murdering football fields worth of graves of animators to... <sighs> Like the opening sequence is a dream sequence of him designing an airplane as a 13 year old boy on the roof of his house and flying away in it. But the, the, the two piston engine has got exposed valves and he animates the compression of the springs and the moving of the camshaft and the up down motion of the valves as the engine fires to some guy going pop, 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 pop into a mic. Or not also, to mention the the ignition of the plane where he yeah. pulls the lever and he hits the switch. Yeah, he, just, pri he primes the fuel pump. He hits the magnetos. He starts the engine. And then he's got a big wooden lever to change the aspect ratio of the wing. And as he cranks on this external wheel, you watch the shape of the wings change like a bird. And it takes up vertically off the roof like a like a soaring bird catching a thermal. He didn't have to put any of those details in. Not None a one. of us would have cared had they not been there. Had he just walked in and the engine started, yeah, it's a dream. Who who gives a crap? And this is why Miyazaki is what he is. He throws all that in there to everyone in this theater who isn't me. Nobody cared about any of those details. Everybody went, wow, that's lots of moving stuff on that screen. He killed animators. And I'm like just nerding out in the corner going, oh, my God, that engine has exposed valve trains. Isn't that and awesome? It's and that's animated. and that was literally a f a stretch of maybe thirty seconds of animation. It goes on for like another two or three minutes, and nothing is still. Yeah. He animates the water, the waves, people's clothes, the dresses, the boats, the the random women walking in kimonos, the the trees, the birds. Like if there's something in it that can move. It's moving. <laughs> so uh, shortly after this movie came out, um, Miyazaki was quoted in answering a question about why he doesn't like anime. And he says, because the otaku creators don't spend time watching real people. And that's what he does. Like he captures real movement. And so he criticizes anime in the fact that other animation studios are not doing that. They're not trying to capture life. They're trying to be anime yeah and and the worst part about it is he's their granddaddy like yeah miyazaki's the granddad like 
I'll put it this way. If Miyazaki's their daddy, Osamu Tezuka is his daddy. Like he grew up watching Astro Boy and the stuff by Osamu Tezuka and said, I want to take that, but do better than Disney. And so he made Ghibli. And now all the other animation studios are like, we want to be like him. And he's like, you suck. Go watch a tree. Go watch a tree. Exactly. <laughs> or hey, if you're drawing kids, go watch your kids. Because I'm the only person to ever get how a child walks, runs, or plays correct. It's true. That's Do you know true. why they call them toddlers? Because they toddle. Mm-hmm. Here, watch an animation sequence of a three-year-old climbing a staircase on all fours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or better yet, just go watch My Neighbor Totoro and watch May Run. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, it, we, we just finished watching this movie together. So the four of us watched it together. And, um, at one point, Jason says, I love what's happening. And so I'm stealing your quote here. I'm, I love what's happening here because we're, sh- he shows how Jiro is being influenced by the world around him and just, Oh, look at this macro bone. Oh, look at how the, this flies in the wind and, and how that's informing his engineering. And that's exactly what Miyazaki does for his animation. Mm-hmm. He just watches the world. Yeah. If you, if you go and find either the Disney release of Princess Mononoke, that's a two disc set or the original Miramax release of the film from the nineties, there's a special feature on there that shows how they do their sound effects mm-hmm. or how they get, um, like in Princess Mononoke, not Princess Mononoke, sorry, Spirited Away, Spirited Away, not Princess Mononoke. There is a special features where they show how they got their uh, source material. Mm-hmm. They got an Audi yeah. and drove it over cobblestones and some poor key grip is holding a mic getting the sound. Mm-hmm. They, you know what I'm saying? Like how we saw Disney drawing live tigers in the studio for the Lion King or Lions or whatever. Like Miyazaki's like, no, 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 no. I want to put this car in my movie. So we're going to go get that car and drive it over these stones. Deal with it, guys. I'm Miyazaki. Bow to me. He has um, a sense of realism for what he's trying to capture and yet understands that it is not to be sacrificed. The story is not to be sacrificed to the realism. And that's why, you know, he wanted to tell this love story. He wanted to make Jiro um, a little more down to earth. So he added this love story that's completely fictional. And I love that. But it feels it feels honest to what couples deal with in their relationship. Like yeah. Jiro has a dream. He wants to make this awesome plane. He wants to give something to Japan that is unique. It stands out and it can compete with the rest of the world because he one of the things they show really well in this movie is the lament that Jiro and his friend um, Hanjo feel about the fact that japan is behind the rest of the world in technology like they they talk about how they have to pull their planes out to the test field with oxen and it takes two days to get to the test track yeah because it's just two farmers and four oxen pulling this massive plane yeah and then they they take a trip to germany and they go to Yonkers, like one of the great aircraft makers of the time. And there's these massive hangars and they have tractors and they have all of the technology and they're building airplanes out of metal, not just wooden paper. But they were so excited because the test runway was right next to the hangars. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the no best need part, for oxen. yeah, and yeah, Hanjo's like, no need for oxen here. And Jiro goes, I don't see any oxen. Like, <laughs> like I like, like the oxen. Yeah, like when that's and that's one of the best things about Jiro as a character is that yes, he understands that it's very backward to use oxen to pull this plane out when we have cars and tractors and all this other stuff. But he also understands that like. It's what we got. So we can, we just have to make do and he enjoys it. Like because he loves nature and real things, he's okay with the oxen. And he's, he's like, you know what? Even if it takes us two days to get there, I want to make sure that this plane flies. So those two days are worth it. Jiro is, is as much as Miyazaki does wholesome, honest to God characters who are great people. I think Jiro is probably the nicest one he's made. And he doesn't over-exaggerate his niceness. He doesn't do things to go out of his way to make him nice. He puts Jiro in situations where he has to make a decision. And he it would be all, it'd be okay, no marks taken off from him. If in the giant Kyoto earthquake, if Jiro's like, holy crap, there's an earthquake. I don't want to die. I need to get out of here. But instead, Jiro says, this woman hurt her leg. Let me carry her so we all can get away. Right? Right. Yeah. No decision would be faulted, but one of them gives him plus plus comes some positive points. Right. And it's yeah. just it's just though his his ability to make those decisions is why he's such a good character. Like he gets accused of putting his fiance soon wife in a compromising situation when in reality it was her choice. Yeah. He never once asked her to do anything that would put her in danger. And she chose that. But when the rest of everyone around him blames him and not her, he takes it happily. So I, I wrote a note about this because I, I got struck with a parallel. There's a scene where um, his bosses are watching as Jiro is briefing the other engineers about this design of an airplane that they're making. And like any airplane that you design for the Navy, airplanes that have to land and take off from ships have very, very strict weight requirements. Mm-hmm. So trying to make as light of an airplane as strong as possible is a huge engineering challenge. We can we can all appreciate that. So um, Jiro is briefing this this crew about this new naval fighter that we're building, and he says, "Well, one of the ideas to lose weight is we're just not going to put any guns on it." Yeah. And then everybody has a laugh because, of course, Jiro knows that he can't do that. The Navy needs fighter aircraft. It has to have guns as much as he would want to. And as much as Count Caproni in his dreams has been telling him since he was a child, don't build airplanes for war and don't build airplanes for money. Build them because they're beautiful. Now, he understands that he has to make a compromise. Yeah. So he makes that compromise. When Naoko is sick and he takes her out of the sanitarium... You know, he doesn't fight against her wishes. He doesn't do anything. He He's not willing to make that compromise. He's not willing to make that sacrifice. He wants to be with her. He's not fighting to keep her in the sanitarium. He's not doing anything against her wishes, but he is, he's already made one big compromise in his life. He's gone against his dreams by making fighter aircraft that he knows he shouldn't. So he's not willing to sacrifice Naoko. And Fair. the best, and the best part, right? He doesn't ask her to come from the sanitarium. She sneaks out on her own and he breaks all the rules to get to her at the train station. Right. 
And I love the scene where his work, cause he ends up living with his boss because he runs into Werner Herzog on a vacation. <laughs> and we all know Werner Herzog has never played a good character in his life. <laughs> <laughs> he then starts getting uh, investigated by the secret police because he ran into this dude and he ends up having to live with his boss to kind of hide out. And his boss tells him, I need you to focus. I need you to get this plane done. You need to send her home or back to the sanitarium. And Jiro's like, sure, I will. It wasn't my decision for her to come here. But if she goes back, I go too. Yeah, he's basically right. like, look, if she's, I, I've already tried to sacrifice and, and, and live without her, but she just came all this way. I, I, I can't let go of her again. Hmm. Um, yeah, Although I gave, I gave up on one dream. I'm not giving up on two. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. it's, and again, why I say this is Miyazaki's best written love story, because it shows again, that compromise, even Naoko understands that what she's doing is super dangerous and very bad for her health, but she would much rather live out what remaining time she has with the person she loves and has been looking for. Like, yeah. let's not belie the point that she's been looking for him since they first met. Yeah. And and when they first get together at the hotel, um, she says, I want to marry you. I want to be with you, but I'm going to get better first. Like, she had this belief that she was going to get better. Right. And then it gets to a certain point where she's like, I'm not going to get better. So I don't want to waste any time that I have left. And for and those of you and for those of you who have seen your lie in April. This might sound a bit familiar uh, because this same type of dynamic where a person is sick and wants to get better and wants to fight for their life and survival for the sake, not only for their partner, but for themselves is a key component to that show as well. And that's also why it's a great show. Sad, but great. You know, and I made the joke throughout as we watched that Isao Takahata was quietly coming behind the animation guys at the end of the day, like after they had gone home and changing what they had drawn, because there are scenes in this depicting socially and like life altering situations, which was like the giant earthquake of what, 19, you said 19, 19 1923, the great Kanto earthquake. Yeah. He draws that happening, which is where, Jiro first meets her on the train during this earthquake. And when he draws this earthquake, he's moving everything. Yeah. Like literally streets and buildings and roads and pathways buckle and bend and move like they're made of rubber because the world is shaking. Oh yeah. And you watch, you watch the tracks bend and ripple along with along with the earthquake what a cool scene yeah and asao takahata is just sitting back going see that's how you draw humanity that's how you draw the real stuff miyazaki but then you get your throat gurgles for you know aftershocks yeah Yeah. (laughs) yes which also is very reminiscent of the fact that in akira uh one of the ways they show imminent ominous and like you know very threatening or dangerous scenes involving Akira and Tetsuo is they use a lot of throat chanting and, you know, they hit those da, 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 da. Like those are, they, they use those in Akira to signify when Tetsuo is about to do something real messed up. (laughs) And in this, they use that to show that this town is burning to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. 142,000 people died in Tokyo. 
during the earthquake and the subsequent fire. This was a massive, massive yeah, disaster, we, which kind of sets up the whole story here because he's on a train. He meets a young lady and her nurse. There's, uh, you know, they, they, the hat gets blown off on the train. Anyway, nurse breaks an ankle. Come to think of it, that was the nurse, right? The 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 older yeah. one, yeah, okay. yeah, so yeah. The nurse didn't know how to splint her own broken leg. It had well, to... I I don't know I, I don't she was that kind of nurse. Yeah, yeah. I think she was more like a wet nurse, like a, a nanny. yeah, like a nanny, oh, okay. like yeah. a like a Mary Poppins type. Right. Um, so um, so uh, our boy Jiro here, you know, fashions a splint, gets her on her on her back, uses his shirt to collect water out of a nearly dry well to make sure that they stay hydrated. And, uh, and don't worry, it's clean. My mom just made it. Yeah. And, you know, saves the, saves the, the, their life. Um, and then sets up a meet cute for later because now she has the shirt. She needs to go give it back when she's better. The, the nurse went to give it back. Yeah. This is why, this is why I think that they hint that because when Naoko meets him later at the hotel before he meets Mr. Venner Herzog, um, she says that he was their knight in shining armor, not just hers, but mm-hmm. both of theirs. And the nurse spent two years looking for him and didn't find him until she had basically given up on finding him and was deciding to get married. Yeah, she was on her way to get married is when she uh, uh, found him and dropped off his things. Right. Yeah. Which is why I think that the nurse had an affection for him but realized she would never meet, see him again or thought she would never see him again and went on and got married. And then on her way to the chapel, saw this dude and gave him back his stuff. And so much I disagree. So, I mean, technically he saved their life. The people around them were screaming that the train boiler was going to blow. He picked her up and moved her. The um, Tokyo was on fire. He carried her all the way up to the, you know, up the yeah. hill. Mm-hmm. To the well, gave her water, made sure she was safe. Like I, I disagree with the whole. I'm in love with my shining knight or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna have to side with Jen on this one simply because, uh, Nurse was way too old for him. He was like he was like 17, and she was clearly at least in her 20s, moving on to her 30s. Like if she was the kid's nurse. Here's the other thing. That's called a cougar, Nutty. Yeah, and back in my day, you could but marry at seventeen. It was more she was so appreciative of him yes. because he yes. saved her charge. Like she really cared about but, this child. But, and just, like we're reading into the subtext yeah. here, but the only affections that are obvious in yes. this scene that they hit you over the head with the subtlety hammer is uh, Naoko, young Naoko, who's maybe twelve or thirteen, mm. obviously has a crush on Jiro. Yep. And it's the instant that yeah. he saves her hat from blowing away in the wind. And from then on after that, it's, ooh, my hero. Yeah. And also, the wind plays a massive important role throughout this entire thing. So much so that every time they meet until they decide to get engaged, it's because of the wind. He meets her the first time by catching her hat. Yeah. At the hotel... It's because he has to catch the parasol that blows yeah. away. Right. Yeah. And then um, when they're walking back to the hotel, they're under the umbrella being in that rainstorm being blown by the gale. And let's um, not forget the uh, uh, she's on the balcony and he's got the paper airplanes. I, right. I love their courting scene. Like, I love that whole section mm-hmm. where he's basically courting her from the ground 
by doing his aeronautical engineering. Yeah. He makes a model plane of the zero or what will become the zero of the, of the A5. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. And uses, good. yeah. And uses it to entertain her when she can't leave her room because sure. she's had a tuberculosis flare up. Now, um, there is, there is something else about the wind I have to mention here as well. Every time he meets Count Caproni in a dream, the count greets him by saying, hello, is the wind still rising? Yeah. And he true. uses and he uses that concept to know when a plane will fly or not. It's his superpower in this movie, mm-hmm. because when he looks at his friend's bomber and his friend is like, you know, I would love to redesign the wings because right now the, the all the fuel goes through the wings. And if it gets shot two or three times, it'll go up like a torch. Yeah, because I can't put armor on it. So yeah. the thing's a flying gas tank. And and, and he tells them, he goes, I don't even know if it'll fly because of it. It'll be so heavy with the fuel. He goes, Oh no, it'll fly. She'll fly. I can, I can see the wind rising. It'll fly. Yeah. Yeah. But then he also sees what happens when they get hit in the fuel tanks and all the bombers crash. Um, you you know, that engineering site is a gift and a curse, right? You know, how, how many, how many of his designs does he see, you know, wings rip off or spars fail or exactly. Um, you know, it's, now, Tech, do you want to argue that the the love story we keep talking about is not the real it's love? Not the story? real love story. <laughs> the love story is the plane that he's been designing since he was thirteen years old, <laughs> and it, it's it's him having to deal with I don't know some clingy woman with tuberculosis that won't leave him alone. Is his boss who keeps getting in the way the secret police that are all up in his business for like no reason the whole world that decides to go to war and not leave him alone so he can make all he wants plane. to do is design this airplane and guess what this is the guy you know this is the guy that designs the very famous the, one of the most beautiful warplanes of all time the guy that designs the zero and we see it in the last 30 seconds of the movie in a dream sequence with Count, and it, him and Count Caproni watch flocks of them fly by. And he and, finally gets to see his love. And guess what his love is doing? It's leaving with all of the pilots saluting and waving bye bye as they fly away to their deaths. And it's like, oh, do they come back? No, airplanes don't come back. Or, or better yet, the uh, Caproni says there was nothing for them to come back. Or no, Jiro says there was nothing for them to come back to. Yeah. And I... I think this movie plays down the impact the zero had on, on not just the war, but the world in general. Yeah, because everybody, everybody had to take Japan a lot more seriously when the A, the A5 and the A6 rolled off the assembly lines because all of a sudden, you know, it's not rice paper screens and bamboo huts anymore. It's no, no, they can, they can play and they can build serious serious aircraft and at the time the americans had what wildcats and brewster buffaloes these things were basically flying jugs and the zeros just ate them up out of the p-40 warhawks just ate them up out of the sky because there wasn't a single thing that could catch them yeah they were fast nimble and durable Well, they weren't that fast and they weren't that, and they weren't that durable. They had a little bit of armor behind the cockpit and in front of the engine. But what really made the Zero potent was it had a 20 millimeter cannon with explosive rounds that could just rip wings off anything it hit. And the fact that it could turn inside of anything. So the Americans in these big, huge behemoth fighter jets or fighter planes, they would come in and the Zero would just turn around, get behind them and shoot their tails off. There's nothing the Americans could do. And it wasn't until years later in the war 
that they started using team tactics of working together in groups of four to do this like bait and switch called a thatch weave where a Jap, uh, uh, you know, you would get a Japanese fighter on your tail and then you and your wingman would switch places so that all of a sudden somebody is behind the zero and can get him off of you. And it was only through the lessons learned of losing hundreds of, of planes. Did they actually then, and working on designs going, man, we got to beat this thing. How are we going to beat? This is what it can do. What can we do? And then with planes like the Corsair, the Hellcat, the Mustang, the Lightning, they were finally able to defeat, um, the, the Japanese air power. But, you know, the, the, the Japanese had a bunch of other planes that they were building as well. Some of them, you know, the Raiden, the Raiden Kai, the Shiden. Um, by the way, they have much better names than the American planes. Like, oh yeah, I would, I, mean, I would, on. I would fly a Raiden. Yeah. The, Vi- the Violet Lightning, the Peregrine Falcon. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. The Raiden also designed by Giro. The, uh, the Repu. Was that man? Repu, yeah. Uh, the A5M, the A6M0, and yeah. the J2M Raiden. Yeah. All yeah, that. That man, again, that man changed the landscape. Not only did he change, because again, I said earlier, he wants to make something, him and his friend Hanjo want to make something so unique and just intrinsically Japanese. He doesn't want to use the German technology. He doesn't want to use, you know, stuff from other places he wants to make something that japan can proudly say is theirs and will put them on the map and he doesn't just do it with one plane he does it with three or four like that trip to germany you know he goes and he looks at the junkers aircraft and all that corrugated metal and those internal bracings and he sees that this isn't going to solve his problem it's like yeah they can make them out of metal but ours are better because these are big and they're heavy and we don't have the engines to lift this off the ground and you know when he when he's walking through the wing of an aircraft in flight because it's that big and they're talking to the flight engineer whose station is inside a wing box you can see it like Jiro's like yeah we can't we we this is awesome this is the most beautiful machine i've ever seen i can't build this we're gonna have to do better how can we do better then they start coming up with solutions and I love the, 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 we, we, we kind of mentioned it as we were watching where the boss is like, I hate Japanese engines, these damn Japanese engines. Like, and you're just like, you do realize, give it 50 years, you're going to be making some of the best engines in the world, right? In that, <laughs> in that very same that, company. Yeah. But maybe because, that's exactly why they made better engines. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, uh, uh, you know, talking about how this becomes something that Japan, we want to do it the Japanese way, something that we can be proud of is really great because, you know, Miyazaki has said that he had very complex feelings about World War II because he is an eternal pacifist to the point that um, there was controversy about this movie because they felt that it was uh, Miyazaki uh directly showing his displeasure for this um, change to the Japanese constitution, which would allow them to mil- re- uh, remilitarize. Yeah. Um, but he says that he has very complex feelings about World War II, being a pacifist. He felt um, militarist Jap- Japan acted out of foolish ar- arrogance. However, Miyazaki has also said that the zero plane represented one of the few things we Japanese could be proud of. Zeros were a f- truly formidable presence, so we were the pilots who flew them. I and so were sorry, and so were the pilots who flew them. The it's really hard to make a beautiful movie about the Japanese experience in World War II 
without ignoring a whole bunch of horrific, horrible things that happened during the war. Yeah. And Miyazaki somehow found a way to not ignore them. Like, he's not pretending they didn't happen. He's not, you know, oh, the, you know, uh, oh, what happened in Nanking? No, that didn't happen. Or, oh, the, you know, Bataan death marches and, you know, uh, prisoner of war camps and, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian abuses in China. No, 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 no. He, he just he doesn't concentrate on it. Like, all of that stuff happened in this world. It's just we're looking at something else right now. And we're, we're looking at this beautiful story happening when all this horror is going on. But, um, and it's, it's, that goes back to his craft because that's really hard to do. He also, he also has some brass cojones because he shows the night of broken glass. Well, I don't think it was. I think we were watching, we were watching unrest in Germany because, because Crystal Knox happened in 38, but with other hints going on, that scene happened in 32. Hmm. Okay. So that was that was even before Hitler took power because Hitler took power in thirty three. So we were watching some type of political strife going on in Germany because you see the guys with truncheons and torches, as right, flashlights, come around the corner and they look at them and they go, "Oh, you guys are Japanese. You guys should go home." Yeah. And then they go around the corner and you see them start going into shops and beating people. But we don't have any more context for what's going on. We yeah. just know that it's something bad happening in Germany yep. in 1932. And my thing is, I, you know, even if it wasn't specifically the Night of Broken Glass, the analogy's there, right? Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you know what they're signifying. Miyazaki definitely acknowledged and paid tribute to what was happening. Oh, yeah. But then he showed, but this is also happening. So, yes, this is bad, but we still have some good going on in the background. Oh yeah. Yeah, or and, something innocent or not, yeah. or, or something that has not been contorted by war and political leanings. It's a boy in his plane. Yeah. <laughs> and even the conversation that he has with Werner Herzog, where he's a, you know, they're talking about really good engineering coming out of there and, and Mr. Yunkers is in trouble because, well, he doesn't quite agree with the direction that Germany's going and it's a, and he says, oh, he, he doesn't agree with Hitler's army. Uh, Mr. Hitler's army is what he said. Um, and it shows that there's just like little peppering of hints. Like we don't go into the whole ethical dilemma of I built this beautiful plane, but it killed so many people. It's I'm going to have a dream sequence with my Italian daddy. Um in 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 my dream and talk about how I don't want to ha- build warplanes. Um, I want to uh just talk about how do I get this up? How do I beat the specs? It's all about problem solving until I meet my dream daddy at the end and I'm walking across a graveyard of zeros. Yeah, as more flocks of them fly off to be destroyed. Like yeah, exactly. So anyways, like it's there. Yeah, where where he says, but they've never come home. What do they yeah. have to come home to? And and I love how uh, Capone says, you know, these are beautiful dreams, but they're cursed dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he's not wrong. I mean, every application of flight in aeronautics that we have used or developed in human history has somehow found its way as an application of war, whether it's the rockets to go to the moon or whether it's, you know, intercontinental flight or travel, they've ended up being applied to to war or warfare or war technology in some way. 
And so like he's so he's not wrong when he says it's a cursed dream, especially especially because Miyazaki's father worked in a factory building parts for the zero. Yeah. So Miyazaki's love of flying is intrinsic to who he is. I mean, it's it's what got food on the table for him. Like well, and I think that's kind of like the whole dichotomy of who Miyazaki is because he will always be the first one to tell you that he's a pacifist. But he loves planes and he loves flying. And the planes that he loves are not passenger airlines. It is, it is the ones that are used in war. And, you know, I think that it's, it's a truism to share that, to share that, that we can have these, uh, opposite ends within us that our passions can be about something that we are diametrically opposed to. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, like you might think it's a contradiction to love a warplane, but a 747 passenger plane doesn't do loop de loops. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't, it doesn't dogfight or do sharp turns or, or fly close to the ground and, and bank up, you know, like the exciting things happen at the, at the, at the stick of a fighter plane. So, so by saying you love those planes, it does not mean you love war. You just love their aeronautical abilities and their, you know, the ability to do again, do loop to loops and sharp turns and nose dives and all those exciting things that we see those type of planes do. I I would like to just make a a, a quick correction and uh, an apology to my friends on the podcast here. Uh, Because when we were watching this, I was doing a lot of research in Wikipedia as we're going on. And that scene in Germany, when you see the guys walk by with the torches, I'm the guy that said, oh, look, it's Kristallnacht. Oh, look, it's 1938. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, then Jason, you just chimed in on what I said. And then I go, um, actually it's 1932. Cause I looked it up and I tried to sound like an utter nerd <laughs> correcting you for a mistake that I had made. So my bad. I, I'm sorry, Jason and Jen. I didn't mean to Listen, come off sounding like the no, no, no. actually dude, but uh, no, it's, it's fine. Cause let's be honest. In the history of Hitler's rise to power, there were several times where Hitler <laughs> murdered a lot of people yeah. to keep his power. And there, we don't get any, like, other than two years later and we're still backwards, we really don't get a lot of, like, hints about the passage of time here I'm, because that's where they played kind of loosey-goosey with certain But things. I do like how they do time passing in this story. It's yeah. never confusing. Like whether it's from visual cues when we see Jiro or whether it's from places we see them in and they talk about those places. So we know, okay, they're talking about this place. That means they're here at this point. Mm -hmm. The time passing in this movie is very straightforward, very easy to see. Even when they go from Jiro being a boy to a man, Mm -hmm. they never say, you know, they never go, okay, he's now grown up. No. It's it cuts and they, he's on a they train. They change his suit color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's a little bit taller. Um, the, and was an overcoat. Uh, and al- along with that, another thing that this movie got wonderfully uh, well is traveling. Because yeah. I know very little about the geography of Japan. I think mm-hmm. I can kind of point to where Tokyo is on a map. And that's pretty much the end of my knowledge of Japanese geography. But the idea of going from the country to the city and then traveling on trains or by road or by ferry, um, they arrive at a location and just by the set dressing, just by how they frame the shots, 
you know, oh, they're in a big town. They're in a little town. They're in a yeah. city. They're in Tokyo. They're in the countryside. They're at his house. They're at his factory. Um, you called it, by the way, Tech, if I'm not mistaken, while we were watching this, when he first travels by train and he meets his buddy that he went to school with and they got hired at the new um, aeronautical engineering company, mm-hmm. you called the 1930s when you saw the people walking on the trains and then in the city, they were there and you're like, Oh no, no, this is the thirties. This is after the crash. And as you say that they're like, you see a bank boarded up and the police outside of the bank and they go, we just lost another bank. And it was this bank this time. And you see people holding signs saying, give us our money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's how you show, that's how you show post crash world economics like that's how you show the impact of the great depression without calling it the great depression this the the amount of story that i'm i'm i am fairly certain that most of this movie could be done with no dialogue i i don't think you need any talking in this movie to understand what's happening um i um you know, I, I think I could have enjoyed this movie watching it in Japanese with no subtitles because the, the visual storytelling is so powerful. And you can tell when he's in a dream sequence, when he's in the real world, where he's going, what he's doing, why he's doing it. And it's all set up, you know, with his his poor boss, who is just <laughs> frayed nerves and grumpy. But you understand, ah, Frayed nerves grumpy boss is putting pressure on Jiro to get his designs done. Oh, look, he's designing something. The boss isn't happy. Oh, look, he's designed something else. The boss is happy with that. But the boss does have quaffed hair. His hair is very quaffed. And it's got bounce. I want to know what, what product did they have available in the 1920s in Japan that this dude can put in the hair to get that level of bounce? Let's be honest. The chick from Incredibles, the little one. Yes. Do you think they're married or do you think they're just related? Yes. <laughs> the costume designer from, from oh, the, the no, no capes. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I think they they're related. That's her Japanese. <laughs> Edna. Yes. Yes. Edna. Good. They pull. definitely have the same hair and it's got the same bounce. And, oh, and they're it's a little so short. Good. The the yeah. other the other question I've got is it, it, it's a question for for everybody here because it, it's one of the things that bothers me a little is that to make sure that we didn't get confused because remember visual storytelling to make sure that we didn't get confused with the character of his little sister she keeps the same hairstyle yes and the same grumpy face and even at one point from being like a little girl of about three or four to being a teenager the kimono she wears is the same pattern yes and if you notice when Jiro travels. He has that dark overcoat. Mm-hmm. When his wife travels, she has a dark overcoat and that and that and uh, that, that hat. hat. Yeah. Right. The sister. So, the sister has a beret like hat. Right. And so that re- my- she doesn't change it until she gets that red outfit. Right. So yeah. she gets that that short little. She's got like a, a short little symmetrical bob haircut mm-hmm. that she wears, up bobbed uh, like to her ears. Yeah. Um. With the straight across bangs. Right, with the straight across bangs. But she wears that hairstyle from the age of three, through childhood, through adolescence, through, through college school, through college, through medical school, comes back as a doctor, meets Jiro, and she's wearing the same haircut she wore when she was three. Now, Mike, have you ever met anyone, specifically a girl, that has never changed their haircut in their life? A few, only a few. Yeah, yeah. As for as for a lady, no. 
But as for a person, yeah, me. Yeah. I've, I've literally worn the same haircut most of my life. I mean, like, technically eh. that's true for tech as well. Uh, no, I do know some women that have always, but it's usually the ones who always have long hair, not always have short hair. What's the longest your hair's ever been, Jason? Uh, back when I went to anime festival, back to when I went to anime festival Orlando for the first time. Yeah. Uh, my hair was the longest it has ever been. Okay. I have a picture of me and I look at it and I go, why do I look like ice cube? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of scale back here for a moment. What did, let's just talk a little bit about that voice cast. The voice cast is intense. Can we just say it probably costs as much as the movie? I mean, I mean, they basically got everybody. They did. They did. So it was Joseph Gordon Levitt as, um, Jiro and Emily Blunt plays who becomes his wife. His best friend is John Krasinski, but we've also got Martin Short as his boss, Mandy Patinkin as his boss's boss, Stanley Tucci as dream Italian aeronautic daddy. I mean, Werner Herzog as the evil German. Well, as the, we're not quite sure who he was. You don't ever get, and, and I kind of, you know, we criticize Miyazaki for not having endings. And this is kind of a very definite Miyazaki ending. It, it ended in a metaphor. It ended in a dream sequence. But it's a solid end. It's, it's an I, actual ending. I think it's a fair ending. And it's, it's kind of like Miyazaki has been trying to do this from the get go. And Elijah uh, Wood. Yeah, season. Elijah Wood has a small role, which he was in another Miyazaki movie, if I'm not mistaken, one that we've already covered. Uh, Mae Whitman Probably. is the, um, the little sister. Jennifer Gray is his boss's wife. William H. Macy is his wife's dad. I mean, just everybody is in this and they, they did a bang up performance. And what I think works is the English cast was dubbed at the same time. As a Japanese cast. And when you're, and, and it oh, wow. was one of those really good jiz- Disney collaborations. This is the last movie that Disney distributed though in the Ghibli series. Okay. Um, it was, it was not put out under Disney. It was put out under Touchstone, but it is the last one that they distributed. So I don't know what the, the future holds for us here. Well, I mean, honestly, Ghibli hasn't put out anything. As good as this since this. So, uh, your thoughts on, um, oh, what's the other one? The one that came out that was released at the same time. Uh, Let's see. Because, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, the one we have to watch next is the one that's, that was released yeah. at the same time. So, yeah, um, Princess Kaguya. I, I thought Kaguya should have won the Oscar the year it came out. It lost the Oscar to Big Hero 6, and I do not think, I do not think Big Hero 6 is as good as Kaguya. Well, we will see when we watch that movie. Um, I, I do like Big Hero 6, but it makes me wonder. It really makes me wonder how Big Hero 6 competed. Because uh, Big Hero 6 was done by, was done by, let's see, the director. Well, it's a yeah. Pixar. Yeah, it's a Pixar. And it was and- directed by Chris Williams and Don Hall. So it had two directors. And Princess Kaguya was done by the great, late great Isao Takahata, aka Mr. I May Grave of the Fireflies, so you don't have to. Wait, when did he die? Uh, he died in, ooh, he did, he died, 
What was it? Two thousand. And then he died. He died in. He died in 2018. Yep. Okay. So he died four years after making Kaguya. Two years before they let him out of his cage to make another movie. Um, now, we did talk about how, um, and I don't remember if it's on recording or just us talking. So Jason keeps saying, I think Miyazaki should have retired after this. Well, he did. But apparently Miyazaki's retired a couple of times. And he's been working on another movie uh, that he announced in 2016. But there's no record of if it's ever coming out. And that he might be working on another movie. So, like, he's retired. But is he? Yeah, like that's why get that, bored. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I say he should have just called it done. Like with The Wind Rises because I think The Wind Rises combines almost everything that Miyazaki is known for and into. Well, and if he doesn't make another movie, this is a great movie to go out on. Absolutely. Like and I feel like he left it all there. Just like once you guys see The Tale of Princess Kaguya, I think you'll like me, yes, me, yes. Isao Takahata didn't make another movie after Kaguya, but did he have to? Like Kaguya is basically again Isao Takahata's magnum opus. Like I know he's known for Grave of the Fireflies because Grave of the Fireflies is one of the saddest things you can ever watch, but Kaguya is excellent. It, it, and with Wind Rises, it's excellent. Like. We thought Mononoke had the best animation of all the things that Ghibli has ever done, but yet it made a movie that kind of bored tech because it was a long movie. Because it sacrificed story for for that animation. But in this movie, we get a excellent story, and and my my in my opinion, the greatest love story Miyazaki's ever done, with also the most passionate and most powerful animation he's ever done, and. I will argue that this film is art. It is an art film in the same, and it is a full film and movie at the same time. You can you can get a you can get a film study degree, yeah, by analyzing every single bit of this movie. This is a this is a deep film. This is a beautiful movie. It has it's poetry. It has it has everything. It's it's it, it has it speaks to you visually. It speaks to you through its wonderful use of audio. Its wonderful use of music. It is wonderfully. I'll argue that the only thing this movie doesn't do well is pacing, because I found the third act to drag. Well, it's the uh, end of the gust. Yeah, the third <laughs> act, the third act dragged a bit for me, and I think maybe the movie's about ten to fifteen minutes too long. It's two hours six. I think. Uh, a heavier handed editor maybe could have chopped this down to an hour 45 and maybe we would have had a tighter, a tighter movie. Yeah. And I think those edits wouldn't even have to be like scenes. It might be like the establishing of a scene gets cut a couple seconds here or there, or the ending of a scene gets cut here or there. Or like, say if a character's staring at something, he doesn't stare as long. It's, um, it's exactly what, Jiro says in the movie at one point when he's, you know, um, his his wife is sick next to him in the bed while he's he's working on a design. He's like, I have to find a way to save weight, huh? If I make this part thinner, I can save one ounce per spar, thirty spars. I've saved a pound. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the, it's the, it, it, you know it's an old axiom in racing. What's the fastest way to lose a hundred pounds off a race car? Find sixteen hundred places to lose an ounce. Um, so 
you're right. Do the same thing with the movie. Take one second or like half a second off all of those establishing shots. And, you know, I am going to stare wistfully at this hill. Well, cut that from three seconds to two and a half. You don't lose anything out of the movie, but I think you can cut 15 minutes. Yeah. And, 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 but I will say the movie does give you stuff to look at to make up for that wrong runtime. Oh my God. It's so pretty. Yeah. Like if you, if you wanted, like, an art student could watch this movie, like you said, Tech, on silent and just watch the backgrounds, the background characters, the movement of, you know, cars and people through scenes and get an entire semester's worth of art out of it. One of my favorite things that Miyazaki does that no one else in cartoons ever does is in rain showing how a dry surface gets wet with the little spots and then it gradually grows and changes color. No one bothers to do that. It's just in one scene it's dry, and the next one it's wet, and they put some like white lines on it to make it look reflective. Nobody bothers to do this like, like he does. Because rain doesn't rain doesn't start and stop at a gush. No, but yeah. it's just a stupid cartoon. Nobody else cares. Nobody cares but Miyazaki because this is beyond cartoons. This is this is moving art. Yeah, yeah. It's it's why I said in the scene when the Kyoto earthquake happens. There are scenes, Kanto, Kanto earthquake, Kanto, sorry, the Kanto earthquake. There are literal scenes where there's floating debris from the fires. Oh yeah, and they're oh, all yeah. moving. Yeah, they're all moving. Like he murdered football fields of animators. There's this. There's a scene where they're at the sanitarium, and you're, you know, the tuberculosis patients are are outside mm. uh, on the balcony, and it starts to snow. Yeah. And you watch the individual snowflakes flutter and dance on the wind and land and move around. And that's, that's unnecessary, <laughs> but it's beautiful. And it's all part of this art piece. It's fantastic. Um, so I, I'm going to say it's fair to say that many of us enjoyed this. Uh, did you two get to see this in theaters when it came out? I did not. No, Jin did not. I luckily. I didn't get to see it on a the the biggest of screens, but I got to see it at um, the Grandin Theater in Roanoke on theaters. It's a it's a small kind of like independent theater. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been holding on for dear life for years, um, but it's a wonderful venue, and I got to see it there. It's very very it was very very good to see on screen. So one of the things that I read was that Miyazaki, the Foley in this, by the way, was just on par with everything else. And Miyazaki said that he thought surround sound distracts people from the film. So he made sure that there was a mono track included with this movie so that people wouldn't be distracted by surround sound. So the Foley's amazing, but he's still doing the mono because he wants to make sure that nobody's like, oh, that sounded like it came from behind me. I understand. I understand that point. Yeah, and I, I think I'll, I'll just make a, a, a little correction, uh, Mr. Miyazaki, yeah. if I may. It's um bad stereo, bad yeah. surround. People know yeah. it because it pulls you, it pulls you out of when when it's like bad 3D. You know, good 3D in a movie can help with the immersion, but when it's would you like some pancakes near far, near far that really throws you out of the movie. Same thing with bad stereo. When it's nothing but watching sounds go after. Yeah. It um, really takes away from the movie. 
Um, by the way, uh, our, our, our guides here were completely oblivious to our 3D reference. By the way, go look it up. SCTV, uh, 3D pancake scene. <laughs> Would you like some pancakes? You'll understand our foundational comedy. <laughs> you do? I don't watch 3D. It, it, it's not about 3D. It's, it's this a, isn't in 3D. That's the joke. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, no. The I, joke is, the joke is from an old 70s TV show called SCTV. The fact is you're, it's, you're watching a bad horror movie in 3D. So to show you that it's 3D, the waiter comes up and offers you pancakes. Do you want pancakes? Look, pancakes. Ooh, 3D. And it's just, it, it's it, awful. It's um, stupid, but it, it sells the point. But I, I, I think, uh, the whole thing, it's like with 3D, I can't see the world in 3D. So I don't wa- watch 3D normally because it doesn't make a movie better for me. Um, but I agree with you 100%. It's that bad surround sound. And if you can't, and I think with Miyazaki, he can't control. For every theater sound system. Well, what he what he needs, mm. or what Studio Ghibli needs, is I'm sure there's one out there. But imagine if they could find an audio engineer that was as obsessive with details as Miyazaki is with his visual details. Yeah, you find that sound engineer that is willing to murder foley artists to get the proper Make sound it work of an Audi on every on speaker. And it has to work on every theater surround and it has to proper pan and move and pitch shift and all of it. And man, death by eargasm so, is coming. So you want, so you basically want Miyazaki to make a cinema terrorist company, right? Like he's <laughs> like, you want him to give, to do war crimes against filmmakers. Like that's what you want. I mean, like, it produces good art. So um, <laughs> all of that said, mm-hmm. um, Shall we move to ratings? Sure. So what would you rate this? I am going to rate this 9.5 paper airplanes out of 10. Hang on. And Ooh. like I said... I think that's your second highest. That's pretty high. I think yeah. that's your second highest. I really wanted to give it a 10, but I found myself... I found myself doing something else in the third act because I don't want to say I was bored, but it dragged a little too much for me. Um, that's fair. Other than that, it's... Like I said, I take I, I take points away. I take points away from perfection in this scale. And uh, other than that, the music's perfect. The story's beautiful. The acting's wonderful. Uh, visually stunning, like all of his movies. There's nothing wrong with this, except, like I said, 15 minutes shorter, and this thing would have been an 11 out of 10 for me. I love this movie. Um, I will recommend this to all of my fellow plane nerds. That man, go watch The Wind Rises. And the thing is, is that if you're a plane nerd and you're in a relationship with someone who is not a plane nerd, don't tell them it's about airplanes. Tell them it's a, it's a wonderful love story set in the 30s. It's a period piece. And they'll go, okay, and I'm pretty sure they can sit next to you and enjoy themselves just as much as the plane nerd who's going, oh, my God, look at the cranked wings on that A5M. Look at, the, uh, look at how they animated the flaps and slats as they extend in and out of the wings. Um Look at him do his proper calculations to calculate theta. You know, um, you can nerd out and they can go, oh, it's a beautiful love. And everybody's happy. So I think I'm going to be uh, very close to you. Um, I'm going to give this a 9.25 because I need to bring it just a little bit under Secret World of Ariad, Um, because I, I do love that one so much. I think uh, this is beautiful. This is art. This is perfect. Um, 
it is penultimate for sure. Uh, and, uh, that is t- 9.25 shingles falling off of roofs during earthquakes. Oh, yeah. I'm dead. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I gotta go first. Yeah. Are you first? No. For me, um, there's a lot going for my rating when it comes to this movie. I have seen everything Ghibli has done. I own almost all of it. The only thing I do not own currently is Miyazaki's early stuff and um, the earwig and the witch. Um, I will I will go ahead and tell you guys this. That movie's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's Goro. That's not Hayao. Yeah, I will. I will. I will just. And, and I know it's spoiling a podcast way down the road. It's terrible. Um, but for me, this movie, again, I've said, like Nutty said, I said Miyazaki should have retired for good after this. It combines not only the love of flying that he has, but also his love for detail, his love for animation, his love for humanity, his love for watching people. Because there's not a scene in this movie that involves multiple people that there's not something unique going on with every single one of those characters. The fact that he does... First off, how did he know how the wings would change and fold and shape when you moved the rudders or the lever on that plane? He had to find something to watch that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like he had to go to like an aeronautical museum and be like, Hey, could you move that thing for me a hundred times? And and he's like, all right, how about one more time? He's literally the Stanley Kubrick of planes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10 hopeful dreams for a beautiful plane that actually are cursed planes that change the landscape of fighter planes for all, all time. I'm just going to leave it at, at a, a hopeful dreams for a beautiful plane because dude, that's a, that's a whole paragraph. <laughs> We're not doing that one. <laughs> all right, Jen. So I really like this movie. It's not something that you um, get all the time because it's got little tiny stories inside of it. It's got stories about friendship, but it's got stories about, you know, the boss that we can all relate to. It's got the love story, of course. Um, this. Oh, yeah. His sister becoming a doctor made me very excited. Yes. Um, because at that time, it was not normal for women to be strong characters. Well, and um, even in the movie, he's like, I'll talk to dad. I think you should. Yeah. Yeah. Because you see a foreshadowing in there where she's trying to take care of him after he got beat up anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this movie for me is getting a 9.5 out of 10 purple suits. Yeah. Also, I am so proud of you two, Nutty and Tech. Mm-hmm. Mm. You guys only gushed a little bit about the Aikido you saw in this. Like you oh, only you know gushed what? a we little bit. That on, yeah. On, yeah. Yeah, we did that while we were watching. Yeah, we were like, uh, what was it? Drop Sianagi? Uh-huh. It wasn't drop. It was Ippon Sayonagi. No, and, and, to, and to be fair, that was more judo than Aikido, yeah. but they share the same route. Yeah. So, uh, it, it's a throw that I can do, but do badly and judo guys do it better. But, uh, yeah, 13, 13 year old little Jiro has to save somebody from getting bullied, drops that bully, yeah. drops that yeah. bully with a shoulder throw. And then what does he get? He gets a whooping. He gets a whooping. <laughs> although, although to, although let's be honest. I think he won that fight. I think he judoed the heck out of all I, those guys. I, I oh, yeah. think the outcome was not important, but yes, yeah. it was the fact that he was standing up for the little kid and the fact that 
um, you know, his mom's like, okay, but fighting's never okay. I uh, know. <laughs> and, 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 and then the sister, you should put iodine on that. <laughs> All of it is good. Um, so yeah, so that's what we thought. If you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, there's no real spoilers, by the way. This is not a movie you could spoil. You can't spoil uh, history. Yeah, it's like spoiling the Titanic. Guess what? The ship sinks. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? The Zero is involved in war. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely give it a watch. It's worth it. In uh, the U.S., I believe it's on HBO. Is that correct? Yes, HBO Max. And in... um. In Canada, and I believe internationally, it's on Netflix. It's part of the G-Kids collection. Sadly, uh, this year's Ghibli Fest does not have The Wind Rises. No, no. And, you know, they 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 kind of go back to their favorites. So I don't see uh, us being able to go to the theaters to see any of these films that we have left to see. The next that we will be doing is Laputa Castle in the Sky. And uh, hopefully we will have a very special guest on that one. But man, I feel old because I'm looking at this and Princess Mononoke is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And the Cat Returns is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Oh, that's great. Well, the Cat Returns is, um, I I believe, uh, one that and Spirited Away is the only other uh, movie that Tech has given over a nine to. Did Tech not give Totoro a nine over a nine? No, he gave Totoro a 10 out of 10. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like, Whew. no, I meant that wasn't a, a 10 out of 10. Oh, yeah. okay. So, all right. And the only other, yeah. And Jason, the only other movie you gave a perfect score to besides this was Spirited Away. Uh, and, and Totoro. Oh, and Totoro. Okay. Yeah, Totoro got, got tens across the board. Right. Totoro is still the only movie to get tens across the board. We collectively gave The Wind Rises a 9.6 out of 10. So that's a, yeah, that's a it's pretty close. high score. Like, like, let's be honest. Like, given Tech's idea about cutting about 15 minutes out of this movie, I think that 15 minutes cut could have given it a 10 across the board. And actually, just looking over our scores, this is the second highest rated Ghibli movie so far. Wow. Uh, collectively, yeah. And so, so Nutty, what do we have left for the, the Ghibli cast? Well, we have Laputa, Castle in the Sky next. Then we have the tale of Princess Kaguya. And then we have the castle of Cagliostro. When Marnie was there, ocean waves. And then I don't know that we're ever getting to the grave of the fireflies. <laughs> Red turtle <laughs> seems to be difficult to get our hands on. And, um, uh, earwig and the witch, everybody seems to hate. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I will say if I have to set it up to where I play my Blu-ray of the Red Turtle for you guys, and now the, the, I feel like I feel like those last three Firefly, Grave of the Fireflies, Red Turtle, and Earwig and the Witch, these are going to be like bonus. Um, I think we finish our series here. Our our podcast will officially be over with Ocean Waves. That and that and let's be honest with those three, and I'm not saying the Red Turtle's bad or yeah. anything like that, but they are so unique in what they are. Well, in the sense that Earwig and the Witch was made after Miyazaki <sighs> retired, after Takahata died. It is, it's, it's, 
It's you, completely divorced you from guys what can made go in, You guys can go in one room and watch Grave of the Fireflies. I'll be in the other one distracting myself with Red Turtle, and then we can hate watch Earwig and the Witch to get the taste of Grave of the Fireflies out of your mouths. Well, and the, the Red Turtle is, it's technically Ghibli, but it's not the Japan studio, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's also not... I, I would rather watch Turtles than watch exactly. the firebombing of Tokyo. Um, listen, 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 listen. I think that a commentary track should be done for well, Irrigation all Witch. What I'm saying, all of that would be after our podcast is over. This is the end of our podcast. We'll be with Ocean Waves. So now that you've heard us talking into the future, and while we only have a few movies left, we're going to stretch them out. This is how we do, right? Like, uh, I don't expect to be done by the end of the year. So uh, you still got Ghibli coming. So let us know what you thought of The Wind Rises. And um, don't be a stranger. Bye. 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 And before we go, I want to thank our patrons, without whom we would not have two episodes a month. We would not be this far into GibbleyCast. Uh, we would not be able to pay our server fees. So thank you so much to all of you. Um, I especially want to thank our top tier big daddies, the street team, as we call it. I think I'm going to have to rename that one. Uh, but thank you to Jax, Jason, and Rich the TT. Thank you to the patrons of the arts. Uh, Andy Luke, Mark Cabot, Mark the Encaffeinated One, Melissa the Bats of Mermaid, and Paul, oh, and Susanna. And thank you to all of our patrons that keep everything going. You are the lifeblood of this uh, whole thing, you know, without whom none of this would have happened because everybody started at a dollar, right? So thank you to Uncle Monster, to Greg, to Harold, Hugh, Ian, Justine, Ken, Kinsey, Mike, Patrick, the Radical Geek, Shane, Steve, Will, and Zachman. Thank you so much for all of your support. Nutty Bites is produced by Nimlas Studios under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial Non-Derivatives 3.0 International License. That means you can't change it without my permission. You can share it and send it to your friends. Just link back to me, my site, and everything. We live at nimlas.org, which has links to everything social media, including facebook.com slash group slash Nutty Bites and patreon.com slash nukejoss or call 347-NUTTY42. Drone Look is mostly a monthly podcast about writing that I love in TV, film and comics. Who am I? And what would this podcast sound like? I'm Andy Luke, and in part, it's audio essays. 
passionate empowerment through Always Sunny, implications of using Mutant Enemy's Angel and Serenity as models for revolution, fun and friendship redefining the superhero genre in 1987's Justice League series. There's creator input from showrunner Tim Lone on Teachers, where Andrew Lincoln led the cast, comics creator Bob Hall talking about Marvel's new universe, Transformers author James Roberts talking about character and comedy and artist Brona Lawson presenting an innovative, open approach to church-going. Also, full roundtable discussion. Ian Lawler and I considering gritty crime drama The Shield and the very, very peculiar So Bad, So Good Baywatch X-Files crossover. Talking with specialist Phil Boyce about the UK's legendary Punk Kids comic, Oink! Episodes also present shorter reviews from a variety of contributors offering fresh takes. So look us up on all major platforms. The Drunluck Podcast.